you're here for the first time this morning, again, I want to welcome you. We are going through the Gospel of Mark. It is our practice here on Sunday mornings to just go through books of the Bible because we believe that God's Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it's authoritative, it's powerful, it's, it's helpful and useful for us to correct us, to train us, to equip us for every good work, 2 Timothy tells us. And so we just go through the scripture and try to expound and explain what the scripture says and what it means, and then exalt God and worship him in the midst of just going through the scripture today as we get glimpses of who Jesus is, of who God is, of, of how he works, how he displays his power. Last week, we, we looked at how the religious leaders rejected the authority of Jesus. We looked at how there are great consequences that accompany the rejection of the authority of Jesus in our lives. We looked at the, the, the root of rejecting Jesus, the cause and the root of uh, rejecting Jesus is sin. It's, it's a rebellion against authority. In the religious leaders, there was envy. There was fear of man. There was a number of things. There was a self-preservation where they wanted to preserve their own little kingdom. And they came in conflict with the king of kings, the one who has all authority and power. And the sparks were flying. And, and we continue to see the conflict in this passage we're going to look at today. In Mark chapter 12, there's going to be a series of the religious leaders coming at Jesus trying to set up the Son of God in a trap, in a snare. We see the conflict happening here. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, it's up on the screen, and I'm reading from the ESV version. Father, as we open your word, open our eyes to see wonderful things. What you want us to see for us, for our church, and show us how to apply to understand what your word means and apply it to our life. God, may we give to you that which you are due. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 13. And they said to him some of the Pharisees, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to stop there in verse 17 for now, and we'll continue uh, after we look at this section. But here's our big idea this morning, opposing Jesus is vain because he perfectly embodies wisdom, truth, and divine authority. 
opposing Jesus is vain because he perfectly embodies wisdom, truth, and divine authority. In Mark chapter 12, we see the religious leaders opposing Jesus and his authority. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him in checkmate. And they have just the right question, so they think, that will put him in checkmate. It seems like a a lose-lose situation for any religious leader who would answer this question. We have two different groups of people coming against Jesus here. We have the Herodians, who were a loosely organized group that sought to advance the political and economic influence of the Herodian family. So we have these guys. They're kind of like liberals, if you, if you will, as, as some theologians highlight. And then you got the Pharisees what, that are kind of like the religious conservatives. The term Pharisee means separated ones. They constituted the largest and most important group. Josephus stated that they numbered about 6,000. And so, so we got two different groups of people coming together, and these are guys that were kind of at odds with each other. You know, it's interesting how this unholy alliance comes together and aims to destroy and trap the Son of God, set up the Son of God in a snare. And they come at him, with starting with some flattery they're trying to butter them up a little bit we know we know that you're uh you teach the way of god you don't care about anyone's opinion and you're not swayed by appearances but you truly teach the way of god proverbs tells us that that flattery spreads a net for for a neighbor that flattery flattering speech sets up a trap, a net for one's neighbor. It's a deceptive work. Flattery is insincere comments. Jesus had already confronted the the religious leaders for their insincerity and their worship of God. They were hypocritical. They were all about external appearance. They were all about external piety. They looked really spiritual externally, but inside they were like, dead like tombs they were like whitewashed tombs they looked nice and pretty on the outside but dead on the inside and so we have these two groups coming against jesus trying to trap him with a difficult question okay now jesus in his wisdom says show me a coin now it's interesting jesus didn't pull didn't seem to have one of the coins himself to pull out but they happen to have one, right? And uh, this denarius, uh, William Lane says, the denarius is of Tiberius, portrayed the emperor as the semi-divine son of God Augustus and the goddess Livia, and born the inscription Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the averse, and the pontifex Maximus on the reverse. But the representations and the inscriptions were rooted in the imperial cult, constituted a claim to divine honors. Okay, I know it's a mouthful. Uh, but, but here's the coin here. Here's a picture of the coin. And so Jesus says, show me, show me the coin. 
whose inscription is on it, okay? And of course, it's, it's Caesar's, right? And so, so Jesus says, render unto Caesar, unto Caesar that which is Caesar. He skillfully, skillfully responds, and he points to the coin. Yeah, this is Caesar's image on here, so give him, give him what's his. Give him what, what's his, but give God what's his, right? And so Jesus did a couple of things here um, in, in answering. First of all, he affirmed that his followers should pay taxes, all right? Jesus was not against paying taxes. Now, uh, many of the Jews had a problem with this. Paying taxes that just seemed heavy, unjust to fund a nation that was oppressive so they can build their roads, all their roads that lead to Rome, and supply their, their heavy military army to continue to conquer the world. Jews didn't like this. They didn't like paying, and no, who, who likes paying taxes? Any, anybody? I don't think any of us really enjoy paying taxes. But it's necessary to run a government. Governments are necessary. Okay? They're needed. Even, even though they are, they're flawed and they're not perfect, I think having some form of government is better than none. So Jesus affirmed this, that, that, that his followers should pay their taxes. Now, if he just, if he just said, yeah, pay your taxes, he, he probably would have lost a lot of his crowd. He would have lost a lot of favor with his crowd. And so he says it skillfully like this. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, that's, that's his inscription. That money, give him his due. If he's asking for however much, give it to him. And then uh, give to God that which is his. Kent Hughes says this, describing Jesus' imputable wisdom. He says, the statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. I think that, that Jesus' response is worth us reflecting on and pondering. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Re render to God that which is God's. So the apostles, Peter and Paul, both built upon Jesus' teaching and how to relate to human institutions, to the state. Peter wrote these words in his first epistle. He said, be, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or as governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so this is the posture that the Christian is to have towards the state, towards governing authorities. Now remember, Rome was a very ungodly government. The Romans were very ungodly. You know, when, when Peter wrote this, Nero was emperor at the time. And that dude was crazy. That dude was crazy. And, and, he, and, and Peter is instructing Christians who are being persecuted to have this posture of subjection to authorities, right? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 gives us a, a very uh, clear um, way that Christians are to relate to the state. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist 
will incur judgment. And so he goes on in verse 6 of chapter 13. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And so we have Jesus setting the stage for us. And we have the apostles affirming how Jesus taught us to relate in an honorable, godly way as Christ's followers for the sake of his name not being dishonored. Christians are to contribute to the good of society by respecting and, and, and honoring God-given authorities, the state, even though they may be ungodly. And of course, that subjection and that support is not to be unconditional for any Christian. There is a time throughout history, and it's happening today, where the governing authorities seek to put laws upon Christian people that go against their conscience and go against the clear will of God revealed in Scripture. And at that time, when the government oversteps God's authority, they try to uh, go against what God has authorized and how God has taught us to live as Christians, such as lying, stealing, murdering, or committing any kind of immorality, falsifying reports. Okay, the Christians are then to reject doing that, to give some healthy pushback and making a a godly appeal, kind of like Daniel did when he was living in exile. He made a godly appeal. Can I eat something else? Can I can I eat these fruits and vegetables for a little bit? Would you would you give me a break and just just test, just see if it it works better? And and God honored that and, and God helped him through that. And so, nevertheless, Christians are to pay taxes and to honor the governing authorities. Now, what Jesus also affirms in this profound statement is that God is to to have our highest allegiance. Though we are to honor the God-given authorities that we have, leadership that we have, God's created the family. For institution, he's created the church. He's created the government. These are, these are institutions, structures of authority that God has placed for our good and for our flourishment. But he says that he is to have the highest allegiance. Give, give to God the things that are God's. Humanity bears the image of God and rightfully must render to him their highest allegiance, affection, and attention. On the coin was the inscription of Caesar. So Jesus says, give it to him. Let him have, let him have the, the tax that he's asking for. But you and I, human beings made in the image of God, we bear God's image. We belong to him. We owe him everything because he created us. He designed us in his image, male and female. And so it's right for us to give him everything. And as Christians, not just because we're part of his creation made in his image, but we've also been redeemed. We're not just a a part of his creation made in his image. We've been redeemed and we've been brought into his family. We've been 
bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You are not your own, but you belong to God, right? And so render unto God that which is God's. And this is the very best thing for you and I. To give God our highest allegiance, our greatest affection, to give him our utmost attention. This is for our joy and for our good. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the greatest commandment that Jesus has asked about. And he, he quotes the Old Testament. And he says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the greatest commandment. God demands that of us. He demands not just a part of you. He demands all of you, your entire being, and rightfully so because he made you, he redeemed you, you are his. And God knows that he's the only one that you and I could give all of our trust, all of our affection, all of our devotion to, and not have our hearts broken into pieces and disappointed and disillusioned. He knows that he rightfully He rightfully deserves that place in our life to have highest allegiance, our greatest affection, and our utmost attention. So render to God his due. One theologian, Alan Cole, in his commentary, um, the IVP New Bible Commentary, says that if Caesar asked for what belongs to God, not to Caesar, they could not get it for conscience sake. For Christians died for refusing to give a pinch of incense to Caesar's statue. In the same way, Christians suffer in our day for refusing to bow before pictures of emperors, of dictators, and presidents. We cannot worship person, party, or state, but God himself. Render unto God that which is God's. Jesus skillfully said this and and stumped and amazed his opponents. They thought they had him in checkmate. They thought they could throw a curveball that would strike him out. But he steps up to the plate and he hits a home run. Because he's the son of God. And so let's continue here. Let's look at the next trap. The next knuckleball, if you will. The Sadducees. Another group show up, verse 18. The Sadducees came to him and, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection, which they don't believe in. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, it is not, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, 
how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. I love how Jesus can respectfully disagree and tell somebody, religious leaders, these particular religious leaders, you're wrong. You've gotten it wrong. You don't know the scripture. You don't know the power of God. And he pointed to this. Now, let, let me just highlight this about the, the Sadducees. Let me just explain just a little bit. They were, um, they were the deists and the skeptics of that age. They were materialists in their outlook. They did not believe in life after death or rewards of punishment beyond this life. They denied the existence of angels and demons. They did not believe that God was concerned with what people did. Rather, uh, people were totally free. And so, so these guys accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. They accepted that as authoritative, but not the rest of the, the scriptures. And so Jesus, wasn't, Jesus could have quoted from other scriptures like the prophets or Psalm 16, 11, and 10 and 11 to, to highlight the resurrection, uh, the, the reality that there's a re- resurrection. But he came to them on their own turf. On, on the portion of scripture that they accepted as authoritative. And he highlighted to them that Moses taught that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. It's a powerful argument for life after death. And, uh, another theologian says, to them, life, all, to this life was all that there was. No, no wonder they were hard, materialistic, and often rich they focused on get your best life now make as much count you know live it up now because this is all you got there's nothing after this life it's been said and i'll and i'll throw in this little joke as well they were sad you see they were sad you see because they didn't know the scriptures nor the power of god they didn't have the hope of resurrection and jesus confronted them with that they they didn't know the scriptures jesus highlighted that and just think about how many today are religious folks who go to churches who are fall in that same category they're highly esteemed they're in high places of authority and honor and they're they're ignorant of what scripture says and they reject the authority of scripture maybe they pick and pull parts that they like and, and accept the parts that they like as Jesus is a good, loving example, but a sacrifice for sinners who need to be saved from eternal wrath, from, from destruction. They reject portions of, of important, weighty portions of the gospel and the power of God. And so Jesus pointed to the scriptures in the Old Testament that, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus defended the truth of the resurrection. Verse 25, he said, when they, when they rise from the dead, uh, 26 and 27, he pointed to the story of, of Moses at the bush where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. The apostle Paul says that if there's no resurrection of the dead, 
Christians are the most pitiful people, most to be pitied most. They're, they're, they're giving themselves, Christians, we give ourselves to Jesus Christ and doing the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor's not in vain. And one of the reasons it's not in vain is because there surely is a hereafter. There's a day of reckoning, and there's life to come, and there are rewards for faithfulness. God sees our faithfulness, and he will reward our faithfulness. So we labor on, we, we press on, knowing that this life is not all that there is. Tim Keller says this, Notice that Jesus does not hang the hopes of life after death, like the Greeks did, on the idea of a mortal part of us. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a very powerful argument for the life, for life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, scrap that which is precious to him. He has promised us life eternal, and that changes everything. And so, so every year, Christian churches celebrate with gusto Easter or Resurrection Day. Go all out and people show up for, for church. And it's one of the, 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 the highest attended uh, Sundays of the year. Easter Sunday because we celebrate the reality that Christ is risen. And those of us who believe in him will rise with him and live eternally forever in heaven with him. Now, I know there's, there's something in here that's probably troubling some, some couples, and that's about marriage, marriage after death. So Jesus says that we're, there's not going to be marriages in heaven, all right? So husbands, if your wife ever asks you, are we still going to be together in heaven, right? <laughs> My wife's not in here right now. Are we still going to be together in heaven? Well, it's not really going to work like that, honey. I'm sorry. But it's going to be really good, trust me. And it's not going to be really good just because, you know, it's not going to be like it is now. <laughs> it's get, the Bible speaks about one marriage, uh, one marriage that, that will be, and that's the, the marriage of the Lamb. And us as the church, collectively as the bride of Christ. And the marriages that we see here on earth are to point to that one relationship. To the glory and the beauty of that one relationship. That's one of the, the purposes, the most profound purposes for marriage. The point of God's covenant-keeping love. His glory that is displayed through human marriages. And so Jesus says we're going to, he says there's not going to be marriages, but we're going to kind of be like the angels in a, in a sense. I get it that it's hard for us to imagine and understand and grasp that, but we can trust that it's going to be good. We can trust that heaven is going to be good, that we're not going to be sad and sorry that it, it's not a, in a different way. I remember as a new Christian, I was thinking, I was maybe six months as a believer, and I was thinking about eternity, heaven, eternity's a long, long time. And I had this fear that came over me because I thought, what if I get bored in heaven? Is there going to be basketball? Or I mean, what am I going to do forever? Play cards forever? I mean, forever's a long time. I can only do so much forever. And this sense of despair came over me, and I dropped to my knees in that moment. And as soon as I did, it was dark in my room. I was trying to go to sleep. 
and, and, I, and I believe that I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to be with Jesus forever, but, but what if I get bored, right? And so I dropped to my knees in prayer, and as soon as I did, the presence of God filled my room in a very real, tangible way that just caused me to just smile real big. And I just sensed the presence of God there. And I said in that moment, God, I can spend eternity in your presence. Like that's what's most important about heaven, right? Is that we get to be with him, right? And yeah, we get to be united together with other believers in the family, believers that have passed away before us. We look forward to that. We look forward to reuniting with them. But most important of all is we get to be with Jesus. We get to be in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore, unending pleasures, everlasting joy, a world of perfect love, a world where there is peace and righteousness, where there's no more war, no more death, no more disease, no more suffering. No more racism. It's a world of perfect love. And I'm, I can imagine there's going to be colors and sounds that be, maybe we've never seen or heard before. I mean, just imagine how great it's going to be when we're with the Lord. And so we long for that. And as Christians, we have that hope. That we are going to get new bodies, resurrection hope, and Jesus defended that. The Sadducees didn't have that hope. Now, now the Pharisees did. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, but the Sadducees rejected that. And Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, got to preach this at a funeral this past week. He said, I am the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty-five. Right? So it's not just a, a doctrine. Jesus says he's the source of life and he's the source of the resurrection. And he who believes in me, Jesus says, though he dies, he will live. And so we hang our lives on that. We hang our eternity on those promises that Jesus has made, that he has come and he's laid down his life for us. He's died in our place. He went to the grave. He was resurrected from the dead jesus defended the resurrection he affirmed that we should pay taxes as christians as, as a part of our witness and he affirmed that we should give god our worship our highest allegiance and so let me close in just a couple of points of application be confident in the wisdom and the authority of jesus be confident in the wisdom and the authority of jesus in mark chapter 12 we see that on display we see him answering wisely, authoritatively, confounding his enemies who thought they had him in checkmate. And he puts them in check. Be subject to the governing authorities, knowing that God is the ultimate authority. God is sovereign over all. And though we see some ungodly authorities doing terrible things, we can pray to a God who is over all earthly authority, who puts up, who puts up and he puts down, right? He raises up and he, and he brings down leaders. And so in, in, in America, we have the privilege of being able to vote. 
We have the privilege of being able to have freedom of speech, and we have a voice, and we have a part in the process of selecting and electing leaders who can help lead and govern this country well, and we should pray for them. We should pray for them, and we should, when, when there are laws and when there are misuses of authority and injustices, we should be a voice to speak prophetically to those issues. But we should be honorable, respectful, and pray for our governing authorities, even when we disagree with them. But we have the freedom to disagree respectfully with them, just like Jesus did. Jesus respectfully disagreed, and he straight up told him, you're wrong. Told the Sadducees, you're quite wrong. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. And lastly, be confident in the power of the, res- of the resurrection life that is yours in Christ Jesus. This will help us face our last hours here on this earth. That's why when I've gone to bedsides uh, where it's the last few minutes or hours of a person's life, one of the go-to scriptures that I read is John eleven twenty five, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he lives. And Jesus, right after that, by the way, he raised up a man named Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead four days, to authenticate and affirm he's the resurrection and the life. Jesus has authority to raise the dead. And so let us live with hope and confidence in our Savior who has conquered, who has overcome the grave for us, who has, who has overcome the, his opponents, his enemies, who came against him, who tried to stifle him, who tried to discredit him and bring him down. Let us be confident in him and let us run and take refuge in him when we're faced with opposition, when we're faced with persecution. Later on in Mark, he'll tell us, in the last days, he'll, he speaks about the, the persecution that will increase and the opposition that his followers were, will experience. And he says, you're going to be given wisdom by the Spirit. You're going to be given words to say when you're brought before authorities and leaders. So don't be anxious and worry about what you're going to say. Know that, God's gonna, that the Spirit's going to be with you, that I'm going to be with you through those difficult times. And so be confident, saints. Be confident because of the gospel hope that you and I have. Yeah, things are really bad right now in the world, and things are going to get worse according to Scripture. Things are going to get worse. But our God is sovereign. He is the ruler of all. He is the king of kings, and he's coming back. He's coming back. And every eye's going to see him. Every knee is going to bow before him. Every person must give an account before him who holds all authority and all power. And so we can live with confidence. We can live with hope. And we can live with godly respect for, for leaders around us that may not seem to earn or deserve our respect. But for God's sake, for the name of Jesus, let's be respectful. Let's pray. Let's do our part in honoring the Lord. And so let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us these wise words to study, to read, to apply to our life. We pray for our authorities, our leaders right now, 
that are facing all kinds of complex challenges in the world. What a difficult time it is to be a leader, to be responsible for lots of lives at risk. We pray that you would give wisdom to our leaders. We pray that you would turn their hearts toward doing what's just and what's right, what's good. We pray for unity amongst our leaders where there's been division, even just within our country. God, we've seen so much division, so much strife, so much turmoil, and it's damaging. We pray that Christians especially would be united, that Christians would be strengthened to be effective witnesses, to to point to the hope of the gospel and strengthen us here, God. May we rise up. May we not live in fear. May we not be captive to fear and anxiety, but may we be confident that you are in control. And may we render to you the allegiance that, that you are due. May we have the wisdom to discern when it's time for us to take a stand and and say no, like Peter and John did when the authorities told them to stop preaching Jesus. They said, we must obey God rather than man. Help us to discern when those times come, when to take that stand and to respectfully and humbly stand, boldly stand for your namesake. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.